You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this great psalm. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your sacred instruction. And we pray, Father, you would teach us this morning, Father. Uh, Teach us and uh, warm our hearts with your truth, Father. And shape and mold us more and more like our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Over the past year, we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament. I don't know if you realize it or not, but I've preached, I think, 49 messages from Romans. 49 messages. That's, uh, uh, I think I preached 48 times, 48 Sundays of last year, maybe 48, 47. So um, that's practically a year's worth of messages from Romans. I uh, really uh, thought maybe we could take a break for a little while from Romans and and maybe take a look at the Old Testament for a little bit, if that's okay. Um, As a rule, I've always liked to kind of go back and forth between the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament. I wouldn't want to be locked into that to to say, okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute that if we preach from a New Testament book, then we automatically have to go to an Old Testament book afterwards. But uh, uh, that having been said, I, I, the Old Testament is so very important and so very much neglected today uh, to the degree that some people don't even feel they need the Old Testament or they don't hardly understand the Old Testament. And um, it's, I think part of the reason for that is it's um, not preached from as often as it should be. And um, as many of you are aware that we can't make sense of the New Testament without the Old Testament. And the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. So we need them both. God has given us 66 books to, uh, to encourage us and to lead us on this earthly pilgrimage. So we need to give fair attention to them all. Last week, having been in Isaiah 2, uh, this week we, we turn really to... Uh, really one of the favorite books of the Bible. If you ask folks what their favorite book of the Bible is, I know the Psalms are going to come up a lot. Um, And of the Psalms, Psalm 61 is a Psalm that certainly has an important and prominent place in many, many hearts. And it's probably its most memorable line is the line that we're going to spend most of our morning on. And that's the the line that's in verse 2, namely the words, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Uh, we used to sing a Bible song uh, that was entitled that, Lead Me to the Rock. Some of you may remember that. 
uh, we would sing that song a lot. Uh, I miss that song. Um, it's based in really basically is Psalm 61. Uh, Lead me to the rock. Um, so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at that at that line. So uh, um, I uh, intended to give you all of this before we read the passage, but uh, never mind. I'm just uh, having one of those moments up here that they, I, I'm a little young to be saying it's a senior moment. I'll just have to say that it's uh, one of those moments. Uh, best we just move on, isn't it? Uh, we learn from the title of our psalm, if you look there, notice the words, that the title there, to the choir master with stringed instruments. You see that? The very title that says of David. We learn from that title that the psalm was composed by David. Uh, we don't know what occasion this um, great prayer, but it's widely believed that David wrote Psalm 61 while he was fleeing from Absalom, uh, his son. And some of you will recall that story. Um, you know, last week I was teasing and I asked a couple of rhetorical questions. You know, if you recall, I remember me asking, why do you come here? Why did you get up and come here? Especially on a cold morning. Uh, like this, and I, I think it's just as cold this morning as it was last Sunday. Uh, but I asked, why do you come here? Is it because we have uh, just built that state-of-the-art youth center? Do you remember me saying that and asking those rhetorical questions? And then I said, is it because the preacher is tall and handsome? And of course, everybody giggles and laughs. It's okay. You, I, sorry to disappoint. I'm neither tall or particularly handsome, just average, ordinary guy. That's all. Um, but if we were speaking of Absalom and if we were to ask that question concerning, concerning Absalom, if someone would have said, well, why are you here? Is it because Absalom is a tall and handsome guy? Well, the question, many people would have said, yeah, that's exactly why we're here because he was a tall and handsome guy and uh, he had a lot of charisma and this is a big winner if you want to be popular. Being tall, being handsome, having lots of charisma, is uh, a very big winner if you want to be popular and draw big crowds. And problem was Absalom wasn't sincere. Uh, he coveted his father's throne. He wanted his father's throne. He would stand in the gates and as people came to get audience with his father, he would win their hearts. He would steal their hearts is what the scripture says. He stole the hearts of Israel uh, from his father. And little by little, he gained steam, popularity. And finally, when he felt that he had reached enough popularity, he led a revolt against his father, a full rebellion against the king. And this, fled, this caused David, this was a serious situation. It was a caused David to have to flee out of Jerusalem. And David flees out of Jerusalem with about 600 men. Now, of course, a trial like that would be a good possibility. For a, con for a context for a psalm like Psalm 61? Uh, we can't say for certain because the scripture doesn't tell us for certain. David had a lot of times in his life where he was in uh, great danger. But um, Psalm 61 could have been written in the context of David's flight. Whatever the circumstances are, we know that it's dire. Uh, he begins in verse 1 with these words, Hear my cry. Oh God, listen to my prayer. And this is one of the reasons why the Psalms are so loved. 
is because they cry. And when you're crying, it's nice to have somebody to cry with, isn't it? And not somebody that's just being nice, but somebody who's actually been there. Maybe somebody who's even had it worse than you. Oh, those are comforting arms. You know, the psalmist is always waiting to cry with us when we need somebody to cry with. And that's why it's so comforting. One of the reasons. I mean, Psalm 61 is no monotone, impassionate, heart-disconnected babblery, is it? Not at all. No, it's a passionate, earnest, life-and-death cry that David lifts up and it resonates with us and I think if you listen and you read and you study and you meditate you'll almost hear him crying you can almost hear you can see him on his knees and you can almost hear his strained voice crying out to God and saying hear my cry O God listen to my prayer verse 2 from the ends of the earth I call to you this is another clue as to what occasioned David's prayer. He's away from Jerusalem. He's away from the religious epicenter, if you will. Uh, he, he is away, and obviously some distance away. And this is significant for a number of reasons, because in the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, there's that phrase again, that big long phrase I used a few months ago, you remember that one? The Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace. Words chosen very carefully. Old Testament administration of what? Covenant of grace. I like to remind myself and I like to remind you periodically that the Old Testament saints are saved the same way as the New Testament saints. It's through grace, by faith. They trusted in a Messiah who was to come. We trust in a Messiah who's came and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty presently. Amen. Uh, but the Old Testament saints were under a different administration as we are in the New Testament. The old saints were subject to types and shadows. And I mean, the tabernacle itself is a constant reminder uh, of the presence of God to the Old Testament people. And more specifically, the Ark of the Covenant, which rested in the most holy place of the tabernacle would have been significant and representative of God's very presence. Now, David is far away from the tabernacle. He's far away from the Holy of Holies. He's far away from the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what makes David's faith so significant for his ancient audience. Now, maybe not so much for us. Uh, maybe not so much for the ancient Israelite either. But in terms of the rest of the world, this is very significant because it was held that the gods were geographical, that they were regional, that uh, Assyria had uh, its gods and Egypt had their gods and Babylon had their gods. And when these nations would go to war with one another, uh, sure, the, the nation would fight against the other nation, but the outcome of the battle would be in the hands of the gods. Whose gods more powerful? We need to keep that in mind when we read the sacred history because that tension is, is usually there uh, in the midst of those battles. And uh, so 
in their minds, you've got the God of this nation, the God of that nation, the God of this nation, the God of that nation. But David is far away from Jerusalem. He's far, far away. And uh, uh, if he had been one of his ancient contemporaries, he may have been overwhelmed having been that far away uh, from his God. But David knew and realized that there was nowhere he could go to escape God's presence. And um, this is really important. I'll tell you why this is really important. Because David feels far away from God. He feels far away. And if he were to allow his emotions to control him, he would have been swept away. And this is why a theological foundation is so very important. Because his theological foundation comes to the rescue of his emotions. Theologically, he realizes there's nowhere I can go and be away from the presence of God. I feel far away from him, but I need to get this out of my head. I need to get this out of my heart because I know that the Lord is the Lord of all creation and there is nowhere in creation that I can go and be apart from him. And David writes as such in other Psalms, doesn't he? You see the theology, see the importance of having a theological foundation? Because, you know, um, some of us, many of us are missing this morning. But some of us, I don't doubt, are feeling far away from God. I don't have to guess at this. Why don't I have to guess this? Because you've told me this. I know this. Some of us might not feel so far away from God right now. I might say, well, I can check out right now because I actually feel quite close to God. Well, not so fast because tomorrow is another day. And um, you will find seasons in your life where you feel so far away from God. It might be because of sin. It might not be because of sin. It isn't always because of sin. Sometimes it could be because of sin of someone else. There's all kind of circumstances that could cause this and control this. And um, our theology needs to come to our aid when we feel like God is so far away. I think it's interesting. I was meditating on this this morning, you know, in preparation. And I was thinking, you know, Jesus reminds us of that very fact when he charges the church with what we call the Great Commission. I was thinking, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, when Jesus tells us to go and, and preach the gospel to all nations, you know, to, to everyone, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Then he adds, listen, there's nowhere you can go apart from my presence. He says, lo and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So important that we understand that. When we feel far away, we need to allow our theology to, to overcome our emotions. It's difficult. This is where David is. He's crying. You know, he's crying. He cries out to the Lord from the ends of the earth. He calls on God to hear his cry. And perhaps this is the strongest reason for assuming that the psalm is born out of David's flight from Absalom. I mean, David's been away from Jerusalem on many, many occasions, hasn't he? Especially as Saul pursued him and tried to kill him. He, he, he chased him all over, the, all over the Holy Land, all over the place. 
Now, he's been in nearly, at times of his life, he'd been in nearly constant danger all around, but something's really wrong here. Something's desperately wrong here. And we know this because David is no mental midget. If David would have walked, would walk through that door this morning and have a seat in, in the uh, congregation in the assembly, I can tell you, you want to know who the toughest guy in this room is going to be? There's no contest. It's going to be David. He's a valiant warrior, man. He's, and he, he, he was in the company of valiant warriors. You know, when we think about going to battle, these guys went to battle with swords in their hands. And they charged and ran up against another angry mob that's coming at them the same way. David is no mental midget. He's a valiant warrior. And here's something that's really unusual about David. He's a tough guy. But he admits to being weak. Tough guys usually don't admit to being weak. It's very unusual. And it's the very beginning of an important spiritual principle, one I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning, is that in our flesh, we default to relying on ourselves, don't we? We, we do. I mean, self-reliance is the default setting of our rebellious hearts, isn't it? Relying on self. Self-sufficiency is so buried into our hearts that we are constantly struggling against it. Listen to what I wrote in my notes here. I wrote this sentence. Listen to the sentence. As I wrote these words... I caught myself leaning in my own strength trying to write this message. I'm writing a message about self-reliance relying on myself. I'll tell you what happened. I started to pray. My mind got distracted on something. I tended to it. I went back and started writing. About 15 minutes in, I'm like, you know what? I haven't asked for the Lord's blessing on any of this. I haven't asked him to help me. Am I just going to do this by myself? It is possible to write a message, get up here and preach it and do it all on yourself. And actually, it's even possible to do this. And some of you say, you know, I like that message. That was a great message. That's all possible. There's not going to be any, you want any eternal benefit to come out of it? Whether we like it or not. That has nothing to do with whether there's going to be an eternal benefit from it. You know, you, we hear the, you hear these messages and you won't even remember them maybe sometimes by Tuesday. What was our sermon? I don't know. What was it about? I don't know. That doesn't mean it's not benefiting us. You can be, you can be rest assured that it's benefiting us. I don't remember what I had for breakfast last Tuesday. My body needed the nutrition from it, though. Self-sufficiency. David's at the beginning. He's beginning to announce something we need to hear every hour of every day. Self-reliance is deadly. There's no room for self-sufficiency in Psalm 61, nor in the gospel for that matter. Our hearts, they're going to tell us to be strong. And that's one of the reasons for that is because we so admire strength, don't we? Man, we so admire strength. I mean, does anyone here want to be weak? Would anyone here want to be remembered as weak? Does anybody say, hey, when they come to my funeral, I, you know, I hope someone will stand up and say, hey, you know, uh, Ernie here, uh, he would want us all to remember him as the weakling. He wanted to be the weak guy, you know? If someone would stand up at Ernie's funeral and say something like that, we'd think he's being disrespectful, wouldn't we? That's not what he would want. We admire strength. Unfortunately, in our fallenness, we even worship 
We worship strength. And by doing this, we really put a heavy weight on ourselves, don't we? Um, Psalm 61 reminds us that we're really frail, we're really weak, and if God were to withdraw His grace from us at any time, we, we would immediately faint. I mean, we'd, we'd immediately faint. David is Sun Tzu. He's so unusual because he's a tough guy, but he gets this, doesn't he? And it's in the context of this weakness, this professing of weakness, this, this weakness. It's in this context that he cries out, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Than I. Now, as I said in my introduction, this is the line that in most of our minds sets Psalm 61 apart from the other laments that are in the Psalter. We, we could say, oh, Psalm 61, that's the lead me to the rock psalm, right? Yeah, that's it. That's the one. That's how I remember Psalm 61, lead me to the rock. It's that line. What's this line all about? What is David thinking about here? Commentaries and many conjecture that David may have been thinking about the caves that he sought refuge in when King Saul was chasing him all over the place. Sometimes he would go up into the caves and hide in the, in the caves. And, and while in the cave, he would have the rock all around him, hiding him and protecting him. And I think that uh, there's probably some truth to that, that David uh, probably meditating in those caves probably had some thought there um, along those lines. But the line is far richer. Listen to what David says in another psalm, Psalm 18, verse 2. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Here, David is using all kinds of metaphors to try to describe who God is to him, isn't he? One of those metaphors is a rock. It's a rock. It's a rock, and it's a wonderful metaphor, not only of God, but of God as Savior. As God as Savior. Inside the rock, inside the cave, he's, he's safe. No one can see him. It's hard to get to him. There's only one way in, and it can be guarded. How do you get up there? Who wants to be the first one to go in? It's emblematic of, of the Lord as protector and savior of a safety, a refuge, a place where we can seek protection. As New Testament believers, we see it as a wonderful metaphor of Christ, don't we? Who is the rock that is higher than I? Christ is the rock who is higher than I. And David calls on the Lord to lead him to the rock that is higher than I. And that leads me to something else I want to point your attention to. Notice that David calls on the Lord to lead him. It's easy to miss that because we think about the rock, don't we? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And the lead part we forget. And the rock, who's the rock? And the rock's higher than I. I think we focus on that a little bit more. But David says, lead me to the rock that is higher than then I, if David's going to get there, he must have the Lord's help. He must be led by the Lord if he's going to get there. But our hearts, they, they default to self-sufficiency. And you know, self-sufficiency writes its own Psalm 61. Self-sufficiency writes its own Psalm. Self-sufficiency says, instead of saying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, it says, I got this one. 
Instead of writing uh, the line, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, the psalm says, you know, I can do all things I put my mind to. I can accomplish everything that I put my mind to. That's that idea of self-sufficiency. You feel how heavy that is? Just think about that. Our culture is preaching that all over the place, and the flesh preaches that to our hearts all the time. We hear it all the time in our songs, and we hear it all the time in the testimonies of the people who, who by God's grace, are successful, and they preach that to other people who haven't shared that success. And The weight of it all is uh, so very, very heavy. It should be no surprise to us that people left and right are being dashed against the rocks when they're carrying that kind of weight. It shouldn't be no surprise to us whatsoever that people are shipwrecking all over the place, all around us. And that's what's happening, isn't it? It shouldn't be so surprised to us at all. In his masterful work, The Treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon mentions, mentions this perilous section of their north shores. I kind of looked on a map and was trying to figure out where these north shores were. I don't know where they were. Somewhere in England, there's north shores. But what I do know is there was a lot of rocks around those shores at this particular period of time and a lot of ships would catch on those rocks and sink and then the sailors who were shipwrecked would try to swim to shore but the shoreline was a big cliff and when they'd get to the shore they, they could see the safety on top of the rock but the the, the, the the landscape was straight up and down and the rocks were smooth from the water beating on them there was nothing to get a hold of and no way to climb to the top it'd be a horrible thing to drown when you could see safety right there before you wouldn't it But Spurgeon says that some pastor took it upon himself to go out there and cut a stairwell into the rock and a big large chamber in the rock so that the sailors, as they washed up, they could get to the stairwell, go up the steps, and then have something solid under their feet and no longer being dashed by the crashing waves. Um, I, I meditated on that illustration quite a bit this week. And as I did so, it dawned on me. Now, Spurgeon doesn't apply it this way, so any weakness in this application that you might find, that's all mine, that's all on me, okay? That's um, not Spurgeon, it's, that's Rick. Um, but it seems to me that the work of this pastor in cutting those stairs in that rock is very much like the work of the gospel, isn't it? No. How so, you might say. How so? Well, enabling um, shipwrecked sailors to get the safety that they otherwise would not be able to get, I think, is a lot like sharing the gospel with folks. Let me put that another way. Um, cutting those stairs up in the rock enabled, it provided a way for those shipwrecked sailors to find their way to safety. I think that's emblematic of sharing the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, let's think about it for a moment. In our unbelief, we're a lot like those shipwrecked sailors, aren't we? I mean, we're aboard a ship that is sinking and we don't even know it. In fact, if the sailors realized that the ship was bound to sink, would they've get would they've gotten on it? 
The sailor doesn't know his ship's going to sink when he gets on it. I mean, if he goes into the boatyard and someone, the yard master says, oh, what, what, let me help you find your ship. What ship are you looking for? I'm looking for the one that's going to sink. Uh, that would be mine. He wouldn't get on it, would he? If he knew it was going to sink. Well, he doesn't say the one that's going to sink. The sailor doesn't realize the ship's going to sink. No, it's not until he's in the midst of the storm. And even then, maybe we can save this thing. Maybe we can save it. You know, maybe we can save it. I think we can save it. We're not going to sink. Well, it's not until he's dashed upon the rock and most often until he's in the waves. It's not until then. I mean, it's not until personal trouble comes along. This is so true of so many of us. I mean, when you talk to people who have found Christ, when did they find it? When did they find him? Through a time of personal anguish. I mean, I'm an example of that. When did I find Christ? It was through a time of personal anguish. You know? I was in the waves. It's true of so many of us, but the gospel is the good news that there's a stairway. There's a stairway. Most people will cry out to God when their lives depend upon it or the lives of their loved ones. Depend upon it, but how do we get to him? How do we find him? The gospel is the only way. We must be led through the gospel. I mean, I've told countless times I've sat down with people and told them that the gospel is the only way. And people oftentimes will say, yeah, yeah, I know. But then they go and their actions make it very clear that they don't believe it's true. Because they go and they lean and they rest and all kinds of human ingenuity and this strength of their selves or the strength of somebody who's nearby or trusting in modern science or trusting in all kinds of things, uh, their actions dictate that they really don't believe it. Well, we have to be led, don't we? David says, lead me. We have to be led. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us and empower us to take each gospel step up that staircase that's in the rock on the shores. The gospel teaches us that we're all aboard a sinking ship and teaches us that it's not in our own strength. It's not in being a good person. You know, it's not being, it's so hard to get that out of our heads that it's not in being a good person. It's not being in a good person. It's not being a good person that's going to get us to heaven. It's so hard for us to believe that. The gospel teaches us the only way out of this mess is by trusting not in our own strength, but in the strength of who? In the strength of Christ. We're not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. We'll always look to ourselves, won't we? We look to government. We look to angels. We look to angels. Do you you realize that? A lot of your friends are looking to angels. Looking to family members who have died, who are looking out after them. Looking to the saints of scriptures. I mean, something happens in a person's life that has the scent of God's grace all over it. It's very clear God has blessed them. They'll say, you know, I must have had an angel looking after me. Has anybody heard that? Am I the only one that's hearing this stuff? It's what you'll hear. Or they'll say, you know, some loved one who's passed away a number of years ago must be up there looking out for me. You'll hear that. But you'll rarely hear them say, you might even hear them say God's looking out. You might hear that. You might hear that. But you won't hear, you'll very rarely hear him say, The Father's looking out after me. Or 
this is even rare yet, that Christ is looking out for me. Think of how many times you've heard that. You're hearing that, it's probably from a believer, not from our culture. And this is, this is what makes this self-sufficiency stuff so dangerous, isn't it? It really, it really is. Because, I mean, while we have this kind of attitude that we can look to government, we can look to you know, things that we might be able to touch and feel. I mean, while we have this attitude, I mean, we're going to remain lost. I mean, it's, and this really is one of the primary reasons God brings these trials into our lives, isn't it? I wouldn't have looked for Jesus if I wouldn't have been in those waves, mashing against the rock with no other recourse. So many of us could say the same thing. You know? So what do we do? What do we do? We become engulfed in circumstances that neither ourselves nor anyone else can get us out of. David leads the way. What does he say? Lead me. Lead me. These are the words of humble dependence. They're not the words of self-sufficiency. These are the words of humble dependence. These are not the not, not typical words you hear a tough guy say, are they? That's what makes David so unusual. God's blessing on him. He says, lead me. You know, self-sufficiency says, no, I got it. It looks bad, but I got it. I can do it. That's what the TV shows are. Against all odds, you know, the guy's going to do it. He's going to make it happen somehow, you know. Humble dependence says, Lord, lead me. Self-sufficiency says, you know, I'll figure it out. Humble dependency says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Self-sufficiency says, you know, I think I can do it. I can do all things I put my mind to. Humble dependence says, apart from Christ, we can do what? We can do nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. May God continually lead us to Christ who is higher than all of us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come to you this morning, Father, and we come to you as people who know and understand the things that we've been meditating on. There's no point in going further with them, Father. I think we all understand as I look around the room. I, I, I know everyone well enough that... I think they all intellectually understand everything that has been said, Father. But as I proved in writing this message, that we can so quickly default to self-sufficiency and depending on ourselves that we don't say, lead me. And we never, we don't say, lead me. We say, I've got this. I can do it. I can do everything I put my mind to. Well, Father, in your word, you do call us to be strong. There are Psalms, lines in the Psalms. It says, be strong. But then they say, wait on you. They say, be strong. But our strength very clearly is not strength that's in ourselves. We're not to look into ourselves for this strength. But we're only strong in you, that you are the strength of your people. That's what your word teaches us, that our strength is in you. So, Father, we come to you this morning, Father, and we do confess that oftentimes, Father, we, we're so prone and we default to leaning and trusting in our own strength, our own wisdom, that, Father, we, uh, we, we go uh, off course and uh, we head for those rocks that we could never begin to climb. But, Father, we do thank you that, Lord, in your goodness and in your grace, in your mercy, in your long suffering, uh, 
Father, you have caught a stairwell into those, into those rocks. And that stairwell is through Christ Jesus. And the gospel proclaims that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that the only way we can get to uh, the rock that is higher, in our, uh, higher than ourselves is through him, through you. So, Father, we thank you for this truth. And, Father, as we come to the table this morning, as we, uh, as we look upon these elements, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would impress this upon our hearts and our souls afresh this morning, that you truly are the rock that is higher than I. And it is only through your goodness, mercy, and grace that we could ever come to such a summit and have rest for our souls. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.